Hello, once again, thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley, your host, talking astronomy and space science. And coming up on today's show, we're going to talk about the first stars, the uh, aftermath of the Big Bang and the first stars to develop because uh, they may have been identified. And glass samples on the moon, what's that all about? The Chinese have discovered these with their Chang'e 5 mission. We'll also be answering a couple of audience questions as we do every week, uh, one on antimatter and the other on fishing in a black hole. Now, last week I think we talked about cooking <laughs> as a part of the show. We're really branching out on Space Nuts. So this week it's fishing, and uh, but there's um, obviously a lot more to it than what I'm telling you. We'll get to that a little later. All coming up on this edition of Space Nut. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me as he does week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, and we're pushing on towards a century, is <laughs> Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Good to be here for the next century or so. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yes. Yeah. Uh, episode three two seven. We're up to, so we're really racking them up. Yep. Yep. Going gangbusters. <laughs> yeah. I've got a story to tell you. This uh, this will be. I'll try to keep this quick. But um, my computer died. It was brand spanking new, and I came in to do some work and push the on button. Nothing. Dead. Gone. So I contacted the company and say, what gives? And they said, well, we've got a 30-day replacement warranty. And we checked the receipt, 29 days. <laughs> I 29 days. So I got it replaced. So that's yeah. great. Um, but, boy, what a what a nightmare because, I, I mean, okay, it's a brand-new computer, but I have to start all over again. But the funny part is when I went into the shop where I bought it, I got to talking to the young fellow there, Harry, and uh, he said, what, what uh, do you use your device for? I said, well, mainly to record a podcast. He said, oh, what's a podcast? I said, Space Nuts. And his, his eyes lit up. He went, oh, I listen to that. And, 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 you're, and, you're, and you're, I said, I'm Andrew. <laughs> oh, that, that went well. But then when I got it home, I realised it didn't have a USB-C port, uh-huh. which the old one did, the old new one. So I had to go and buy a cable from another shop and went in. They said, what do you need this for? I said, I need to um, plug my roadcaster into my computer for the podcast. Oh, what's the podcast? This is where you're going to laugh. I said, oh, Space Nuts. And they all stopped. There's about three people behind the counter and they all looked at me and went, oh, you're Andrew. We listened to that. (laughs) And then the guy next to me who was a customer put his hand out and said, always wanted to meet you and shook my hand. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. There you go. It gives, it gives a really good clue to the, the, you know, the distribution of our audience and the cross-section oh, wow. of what they do. They all work in computer shops. Uh, I'm going to break my computer every week. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I'm aware of it. And I must give them a shout-out for fabulous service. Mm. Everybody was great in getting this thing sorted out before they knew who I was. That's nice. So, We better get down to business, Fred. Now, um, let's talk about the first stars in the universe. This, this is um, uh, this is really fascinating in that you wouldn't think you'd be able to find much evidence of stars that came into existence, you know, over thirteen billion years ago, and yet. Uh, even today, we can we can still find um, telltale signs. I 
I'm just assuming for a moment that they probably still don't exist, but then again, maybe a couple of them do. Uh, no, you, you're probably right. They, they probably don't. Uh, the, the very first stars, um, which astronomers give a slightly goggled, gobbledygook name to, they call them Population 3 stars. Uh, and um, just to explain a little bit about why that is, Population 1 is stars like the Sun, which sit in the disk of our galaxy, uh, which are very rich in in uh, in what we call metals. That's the any elements heavier than hydrogen and helium, uh, and so you know the, you've got plenty of raw materials for planets and living organisms that are that, that are present in the atmospheres of these stars. Um, now that's population one. Population two, however, are much more depleted in those heavier elements, and they, we find them in places like the halo of our galaxy and the nucleus, the centre of our galaxy. So they're, they're thought to be very old stars. But um, I guess it's a few decades ago now, it's probably 20, 30 years ago, people s- speculated that there must be an independent population of stars which were the very first stars to appear, population yeah. three. Uh, I think we actually did a segment on them some time ago and we were talking about them probably existing. The, the, yes, that's right. And proven yet or something. On reflection, you're absolutely right, Andrew, because I have a colleague uh, in the United States, Tim Beers, whose quest is looking for these things. And what, mm. you, what you're looking for is stars that have got basically no metals in their atmospheres uh, because they're – the, you know, the gas cloud from which they formed was pristine. It hadn't been contaminated by all the other stuff that litters the universe. So yeah. um, that uh, quest for population three uh, is ongoing. But what we have here is a story which is a bit more circumstantial, but it is uh, still good evidence for uh, the ex- the existence of population three stars. And that is uh, that... Um, and I should mention these observations were made with the Gemini North Telescope in Hawaii, uh, Mm. which has been uh, looking at um, quasars. So quasars are basically delinquent galaxies. They're they're young galaxies with um, um, essentially a a black hole gobbling up stuff at their centre and in doing that, the black hole becomes very bright or the accretion disk around it becomes very bright. And so um, the quasar itself shines brilliantly from the other side of the universe. Uh, but these, some of these quasars are um, essentially uh, immersed in clouds of gas and dust. And mm. in particular, one of them has been examined and the gas cloud around it has been investigated by spectroscopic means breaking up the light so you you get the barcode imprints of the various elements and and what they found is a very unusual ratio of uh, iron to magnesium uh, with uh, well they said 10 times more iron than magnesium when you compare it with the ratio uh, of those elements in the sun in other words, you know, this is a, a big difference between the chemistry of the sun and the chemistry of this gas cloud around uh, the quasar. And the scientists who have worked on this, um, and in fact, I think um, at least one of them is from the 
I think the first author is from the University of Tokyo, Yuzuru Yoshi. Uh, and what, what uh, Yuzuru, Yuzuru has done is looked at this uh, mismatch between iron and magnesium and asked, well, where did this gas come from? How, how did it get like that? But they have also looked at uh, what you expect to find if a population three star with between 150 and 250 times the mass of the sun and just made of hydrogen and helium, if that thing explodes uh, in a what's called a pair instability supernova, it's a particular type of supernova. Um, yeah. So it, it, you get the explosion and the debris that's scattered out into space is it contains the stuff that's been generated inside this star itself. Even though the star started off with, with only hydrogen and helium, the, the nuclear mm. processes actually generate the he heavier elements. And it turns out that you get exactly this answer. The ratio that they found in this uh, gas cloud is exactly what you would expect from a pair instability supernova of a population three star. So what they're claiming uh -huh. to have detected is not the star itself, but the debris left behind when that star exploded at the end of its short life. It's probably yeah. only a few million years. That is short for a star, isn't it? When you yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Our, sun, uh, our sun is um, uh, about 5 billion years old, 5.6 5. million years old. Is life in the old dog yet? Uh, there is, yes. There's another probably 3, 4 billion years. And I've just found that one of the co-authors of this study, Andrew, is the colleague of mine that I mentioned earlier, Timothy Beers, oh, okay. Tim Beers, University of Notre Dame in the U in the US. Uh, so there you go. He's one of the authors, and that doesn't surprise me. He's always on the lookout for population three stars. Mm. So they haven't proven that they've existed, but they are getting mighty close. Is that what we're I saying? I think this is pretty good evidence that they existed because the, the only way you can get this odd um, ratio of magnesium to iron is by um, this uh, pair instability supernova with this very high mass star, maybe even 300 times the mass of the sun, which would be a population wow. three star. So, yes, you're right. We haven't seen one yet, but this is really good circumstantial evidence. It's this. Is, are, they, are they likely to be any? Well, um, that's the question. And, uh, you know, if you got one that um, could, could somehow manage to last for 13.8 billion years uh, mm. till the present time, maybe there will be some. Maybe there will be low mass population three stars lurking, even in our own galaxy. Actually, that's the comment that Tim Beers made. He said, um, he says, we now know what to look for. We have a pathway. If this happened, and by that I mean this exploding star, if this happened locally in the very early universe, which it should have done, then we would expect to find evidence for it locally. In other words, in our own galaxy. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure Tim will be hard at work <laughs> I trying think to find he will, it. yeah. Sounds like he's on an epic journey. It, it is. Yeah, it's a truly epic journey. He's a great guy, actually. I haven't seen him for a long time, but, yeah, it's, it's an epic quest for it, Population 3. Tim's on a, on a journey uh, of, of uh, one kind, and Yuzuro Yoshi is on a journey of another because he's great mates with the Super Mario Brothers, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Some people will get that joke. Yes. Uh, Many. Yeah, they're probably the blokes that fix your computer there that will get it. 
yeah, they they were they were Super Mario Brothers for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Good. So circumstantial evidence, we'll call it. I think that's the oh. the best way. In fact, really, it's the smoking gun. That's the the best way to put it. Yeah. Even though it's not smoking, it's just shining. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there might be more to tell about this story down the track and uh, who knows, we might be able to get Tim on Space Nuts. To oh, talk that would about be it. great, yeah. That would be great. That would be nice. Yeah. Mm. All right, uh, this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, let's turn our attention to the moon, which is the focus of a lot of attention at the moment with China and the United States. Um uh, wanting to, to get more involved in in being on that particular satellite, uh, and of course we know about Artemis One, which uh, has um, had its uh, launch date pushed back to November, uh, is the latest right, news. Yeah, so right. they're not going to try and take advantage of the October window. They're going to uh, give that the flick and uh, make sure all systems are uh, nominal for a November launch. So um, we'll have to wait and see on that. But uh, the, the 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 interesting thing about the moon is we keep discovering fascinating things about it. Now, uh, beads of glass. <laughs> What's what? What are they found, and what is it telling us? Well, yes. So the beads of glass are not, um, you know, they're not uncommon on the moon. They're known already. They were found in the lunar samples from uh, from Apollo, uh, from well, the various Apollo missions. Uh, mm-hmm. back in the 60s and 70s. But what we have now is a new sample of lunar soil brought back by the Chang'e 5 mission, a Chinese spacecraft that landed and uh, returned samples of lunar soil. I think, if I remember rightly, it was in 2020 when that took place. Um, so these uh, have now been in earth, earthly laboratories long enough to, to be fully analysed, and some interesting results have come out. Um, And as I always tend to do, I'm going to quote uh, some of the scientists themselves who are involved with this. This is uh, from Professor Alexander Nemkin, I think is the way his name will be pronounced, from uh, the School of Earth and Planetary uh, Sciences at Curtin University uh, here in, in Australia. Uh, mm. And Alexander says, we combined a wide range of microscopic analytical techniques, numerical modelling and geological surveys to determine how these microscopic glass beads from the moon were formed and when. And this is the interesting bit, Andrew. We found that some of the age groups of the lunar glass beads coincide precisely with the ages of some of the largest terrestrial impact crater events, events, including the Chicxulub impact crater, Uh responsible for the dinosaur extinction event. Uh, The study also found, and this is still quoting Alexander Nemkin, uh, the study also found that large impact events on Earth, such as the Chicxulub crater 66 million years ago, could have been accompanied by a number of smaller impacts. Uh, and if this is correct, it suggests the age frequency distributions of impacts on the moon might provide valuable information about the impacts on the Earth or in a solar system. So mm. it's, it, what it's saying is uh, that, you know, when you get something that bashes into the Earth uh, big enough to cause trouble, uh, around about the same time, you get stuff hitting the moon as well. Um, yeah. And that is really 
quite suggestive of um, you know multiple asteroids being on these collision trajectories rather than just a single big asteroid and you know it raises the uh, the issue again because we talked about this probably a couple of months ago that uh, mm. Chicxulub was not on its own that there was there's evidence for another crater off the coast of uh, East Africa uh, yeah, I, be- right. um, I beg your West Africa that that's um, that looks as though it's the same age as the Chicxulub crater and is suggestive of Chicxulub um, well, the Chicxulub asteroid being accompanied by other bits and pieces as well, some of which mm. hit the moon. So it, this is a really interesting piece of information that um, you know we don't um, we don't just get these things coming in ones. They they might come in in multiples, and maybe that's because they've already been broken up, perhaps by gravitational effects of a passage by the sun or something of that sort. Yeah, I, I suppose it, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, events like this would happen in clusters. Yeah. We, we just assume that these these asteroids are just out there doing their own thing by themselves. They're not very social. <laughs> uh, you know, they're, they're usually awkward in the schoolyard and sit by themselves in the corner. But um, it sounds like it's very possible that the 66-million-year-ago events surrounding the uh, demise of the dinosaurs might have been might have been a cluster event. It could have been, yeah, multiple hits on Earth and the yeah, Moon. Yeah, that's right. Um, wow. So uh, the, 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 they're not small impacts. These that they're talking about. The uh, again with the uh, the results, they've determined that the the the, 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 the you know the, the the glass samples uh, suggest that the impacts themselves would have been would have produced craters between 100 and 1300 meters in diameter so that's quite big 1.3 kilometers uh, with temperatures of the material that was thrown off between 827 and 1427 degrees celsius uh, and sending those little glass beads away more than 150 kilometers after the impact uh, so yeah, it's really yeah, really interesting study that you can determine all that just from little glass beads. And apparently, the yeah. technique that they used is something called uranium lead dating, uh, which involves measuring the ratio of uranium isotopes to to lead isotopes. Now, when you say little glass beads, what size are we talking? Are they like granular size, or are we talking yeah bigger? They're they're, they're microscopic. Um, so. Oh. Um, the, the, the soil itself is very fine, the lunar soil. Uh, so mm. I think you're talking about really small particle sizes. I can't give you a number. Um, but they are, uh, they're mostly spherical as well, which is suggestive also of them having been flung into, into space at, at high temperature. So they've melted and formed a sphere. Um, so very, yes, glass beads. Um, I guess you would be measuring their um, diameters in uh, probably hundreds of a millimetre or thereabouts. Okay. Uh, I'm fascinated by some of the things they've been discovering on the moon, not only from the Apollo missions but uh, more recently. And, uh, you know, it, it seems to be a, um, uh, and I think we talked a couple of weeks ago, and it seems to be a place that's potentially worth farming <laughs> in the future. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to think of such what it was called. Such. But the Chinese found what they think it was a, a new mineral of some kind on the oh, moon. Oh, that's right, Changisite. Yeah, we yes, talked about that's it. it. And, and 
Yeah, potential um, energy property. Yes, that's right, because it's got possibly helium-3. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, interesting I, stuff. That really, yeah, and I suppose that, that sort of uh, increases the, um, the enthusiasm to do more investigation into what the moon could mm. offer us. Yeah. And as we've discussed before, uh, you can't claim ownership of anything beyond Earth, but you can go and, you know, farm the living hell out of it and take it all <laughs> home, claim it to be your own. Yeah. So that's legal. Um, the moon could become a, a, a um, I don't know, it could be could be strip mined in the future. Well, it's certainly a thought, isn't it, that um, it wouldn't be impossible. Wouldn't it be awful if we could see mining on the moon from Earth? <laughs> it, it, well, uh, it, it's certainly something that's been portrayed in science yeah, I'm fiction. I'm sure it has, yeah, yeah. I, I've seen a couple of uh, movies where I think it was the newer edition of the movie The Time Machine where they um, were doing something on the moon and they just pushed too hard and the thing cracked. Oh, the whole moon. <laughs> the whole moon. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, yeah, and caused an awful mess. Um, but, you know, some of the stuff that's happening in reality isn't far oh. off. We, we're... We're making a heck of a mess in our own atmosphere and, and just out of the atmosphere in terms of space junk and trying to find ways of dealing with it. Um, I think the UK is is launching a, a new mission soon to try a new way of reducing space junk. But um, I know the responsibility is on the launcher to fix the problem, but that doesn't always work. Mm. Uh, it's got to look at the side of the roads to see how people are. Yes, that's right. But, um, yeah, this, is, uh, this is always interesting and, and there's, a, there's a real uh, space race, space race 2.0 going on at the moment uh, for the moon and, and for Mars. Uh, and I, I, I saw another story recently, Fred, where the Indians had a satellite orbiting Mars and it was there for about a, I think it was a 14-month mission or something. It lasted six years, mm. only just shut itself down the other day. Yep. So, you know, there are some amazing things happening. And with all these competing entities and the fact that they're cooperating, I, I think we're just on the cusp of a giant leap in terms of um, exploration in our own solar system at the very least. So uh, it's pretty darn exciting when you think about it. It is. It's good that we're here mm. to cover it as well. It is, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely is, yes. All right, um, so there'll be obviously more to talk about going forward, but if you want to uh, read up on those um, glass spheres as uh, they're described, uh, the livescience.com website is a good place to start. They've got a great article on it. This is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. You're listening to Space Nuts, the podcast about astronomy and space science with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Now, Fred, uh, let's see if we can sort out a couple of questions from our uh, audience and uh, they keep them coming in, so we keep answering them. I don't know if we've actually ever answered one correctly, but we will continue <laughs> to try. And uh, this, this one's sort of um, interesting in that it's something that comes up from time to time that, that, that people want to know about. And John from Ohio is the latest to sort of touch on this particular thing. Hello, Fred and Andrew. This is John from Ohio in the United States. I had a question regarding antimatter. So I, my understanding is that physicists are generally puzzled by the lack of antimatter in the universe 
that equations would generally suggest that there should be equal amounts of matter and antimatter present at any given time. What I am wondering is, are we transitioning from the entirety of matter being regular matter to the entire the entirety of matter being antimatter? Uh, and I'm wondering if this is possible when matter crosses the event horizon of a black hole, and perhaps it is accumulating antimatter, you know, within these black holes, uh, rather than simply collapsing matter to a, a point of singularity, rather there being just a, a, a clump of matter existing within these black holes. Uh, yeah, so I appreciate the show. Uh, the chemistry that you two have is wonderful. I wish there was more of it in the world. I always look forward to your shows and uh, thank you both for the time and effort that you put into this. Oh, thank you, John. No, it's our pleasure and uh, yeah, lovely words. Um, I'm glad I'm glad you appreciate it and uh, we seem to get uh, a few uh, people here and there um, saying how much they enjoy the, the, the program and the camaraderie and the, and the, the sense of humour and the dad jokes. I don't know how you enjoy dad jokes, but anyway. <laughs> Got to be a dad. Um, <laughs> uh, no, we do appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, antimatter. Now, yeah. we've had a few questions over the years in regard to antimatter. Um, does it actually exist or is it theoretical? Oh, no, it definitely exists. Okay, yeah. uh, it right. is so. So, an antimatter particle, uh, you know, in the subatomic world, is the same as the normal particle, but it's got an opposite electrical charge. So, okay. so you've got an electron which has a negative electrical charge. A positron is its antimatter equivalent with a positive electrical charge. And what happens right. is, if you bring them together. They annihilate. That's why everybody loves them. They annihilate and and produce a lot of energy because um, what you've got is the entire mass of these two particles going into producing energy. It's gamma rays, actually, that they normally produce. Uh, and, of course, E equals mc squared is the equation that links that. Uh, M is the mass. Uh, then you multiply it by the speed of light, which is an enormous number, squared, which is an even more enormous number, uh, to get the amount of energy that comes out. And that's why it's a very en en you know, energy-giving process. Um, and in fact, you, get, uh, you do get uh, gamma rays with a particular spectral signature, um, you know, like the fingerprint of them, so that, so that you can tell when you've got two particles that annihilate, okay. basically by analysing the gamma rays. Um, yeah, it must be some other particle I was thinking of that was only theoretical, but there's probably... There are a few like that. There's tachyons, which are faster than the speed of light and almost certainly don't exist, but people use them as a theoretical model, which is quite... Gravitons? Yeah, well, They're gravitons theory. probably do exist, but we've never found them. And there's no yeah. theory that that suggests how they work. Um, yeah, so that all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, antimatter particles are real. Uh, and um, uh, basically John's right in saying that it's a mystery why we've got a universe that's mostly made of matter rather than equal chunks of matter and antimatter, which have to be kept apart so they don't blow themselves up. Yeah. Uh, that's not understood. Uh and um, his idea is interesting, kind of using black holes as a factory for 
uh, changing the, the cosmic balance between ma- matter and antimatter. Um, mm. I'm really not enough of a physicist to know whether that's even possible. Um, I think, you know, you, you, you kind of end up with all of one kind inside the black hole <laughs> and all of the other kind not. Uh, I, th- I suspect it's, um, I, I think it's probably a long shot. Uh, I think John's drawing a long bow there, if I can mix metaphors. Uh, but um, but it's a really interesting idea. And, and it is a hot topic in astrophysics. Why... Uh, if we did have an equal, you know, if the modelling all suggests that there was equal amounts of antimatter and matter produced in the Big Bang, why do we only really see matter? There is antimatter there, but it's in far smaller, far smaller quantities. Well, maybe that's a good thing. It is, yes. <laughs> um, you don't want your antimatter self to turn up and uh, shake hands because that would be that would be the end. Of yeah, it'd be the end of both of you. Yeah. But you'd go out with a bang. Very much so, yes. E equals MC squared would be the amount of energy you'd produce. <laughs> yeah. I find it fascinating. Um, let's assume for a moment there are multiple universes. Is it possible that in that case that there could be an antimatter universe yeah. where there's more antimatter than matter? I think it is. I think, um, you know, if you're going to take a wild fa- leap of fantasy into multiple universes because we don't know whether there are such things, but there could be, mm. uh, then, yes, there might be a universe that's that's uh, an antimatter universe, which we would really want to stay away from. Oh, yeah. yeah. You don't want to <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, really. Um, I, I saw something the other day which suggested that prior to the Big Bang, there were multiverses. Hmm. I, I don't know the details. I, I've started a conversation. I can't finish. But well, it's it's true that um, uh, that yeah that that you know there, there might well have been multiverses. The one of one of the common models for multiverses is Roger Penrose's one, uh, which suggests that um, uh, super super duper massive black holes, uh, which could form in a universe will eventually become unstable and explode as a as a as another universe so you might have several of these going off inside different universes mm. good stuff sounds like a bit of a worry um so bottom line is we don't really know why there's an imbalance in matter and antimatter in this universe yeah and um yeah i like john's idea but i don't know whether it's a feasible physical possibility <clears throat> mm. so what would happen if antimatter collided with normal matter close to us, uh, we, we'd get a burst of gamma radiation, and if it was enough of the two different sorts, we'd give we'd get fried. Ah, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, let's hope that yeah. doesn't happen either. Yeah, let's let's yeah. hope that. I'm pretty sure the Dart mission couldn't save us in that. No, case. no, that's right. No, Dart's a lot more um, gentle compared with. <laughs> we're talking about here it only hit the asteroid at six kilometers per second that's mm. nothing compared with matter annihilation well okay well that prompts and i'm just keep thinking of questions but what what are the odds of some sort of antimatter matter collision explosion in general or is this just an unknown well it must be pretty low um because i think because we're- <laughs> Sorry, i missed that sorry 
Because we're still we here. We are still here. Yeah, sorry, you, you broke up just at that critical point. We are still here. Well, I am. Uh, you, you, you probably are too, uh, even though... Because of my antimatter microphone, I think that's... <laughs> yeah. 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 Of course, you, you'd really need... You, they should put labels on the boxes, shouldn't they, really? If you get a, 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 an antimatter microphone by accident uh, delivered to your door and you plug it into your computer, well, you've had it. You're a god. The beauty of an antimatter microphone is, is I can say something lame, but you hear it as a joke and it's funny. <laughs> mm, yes. That's uh, no. No, no, I was, that must be a better joke there. <laughs> <That's>, Probably. <laughs> so the odds are very low of an antimatter matter collision that could be nearby. Out. That's right. But there might be stuff like that going on in the galactic center. Right. Where, okay. You know, stay away from that. Yeah. Stay away. Yeah. All right. Thanks, John. I'm not sure we answered your question, but create some interesting thought. <laughs> some horrible jokes. Yes. Although you would have heard that as fun. So. <laughs> Only if you've got an antimatter microphone or antimatter anti headphones. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, let's move on um, to this one. This, this is a what if, uh, a hypothetical, and I really love this question from Zach. Hey, Andrew and Fred. Love podcast. Zach from Washington, D.C., um, have kind of a silly thought experiment, but um, it's been it's been keeping me up at night. So imagine you're in this theoretical space fishing boat and you are orbiting a black hole as close to the event horizon as you possibly can be without crossing it. You have space fishing rod. You cast your line into the black hole past the event horizon. What might you expect that would happen? Would the the fishing rod be ripped out of your hand because the the line is tugged. Imagine this line is sufficiently strong for this to happen. Um, would the line snap? I guess what I'm going after is if someone or something is on the outside of a, of the event horizon, but still holding on to an object where the other half of it has passed the event horizon and gone into the black hole, what might we expect to uh, see or experience? Thanks so much. Take care. Gee, Zach, no wonder you're not sleeping. That's <laughs> it's complicated. So let's. Uh, you're on the interstellar starship Titanic, and you're just outside the event horizon of a black hole. But you decide to go fishing, and you hurl your line into the void. What happens? It's probably the neatest way of getting spaghetti. Actually, you know, because that's what the fish would be. <laughs> Yeah. as would your line, as would you. Um, so the event horizon is, uh, it's its not a sort of barrier, you know, that keeps the black hole uh, intact in, inside. It's just that height above the black hole uh, from which light can't escape or penetrate. Mm. So it is the point of no return. Uh, that's the critical thing about the event horizon. But, but it doesn't really mark... Um, it, it's not a kind of step in the gravity distribution, if I can put it that way. Uh, the, the, the gravitational field that you're in is really, really, really strong, no matter which side of the black hole uh, of the event horizon you are. Uh, and so you're you're kind of already spaghettified before you get anywhere near the black the event horizon. Um, yeah, so your line would have to be infinitely strong. Uh, in order to withstand sp spaghettification. Uh, but I think um, 
even infinitely strong fishing lines can't withstand a black hole. So yes, it's a it's a sad ending, really. Um, you, you know, your spacecraft spaceship Titanic. Um, after you've rearranged the deck chairs, it probably gets uh, stretched into something that you wouldn't really want to sit on. So it's. I don't think you'd have to rearrange the deck chair. <laughs> that would be done for, for you. you. That's right. Uh, that's right. Not only do you rearrange them, you metamorphose them into long, thin things because they're being pulled, yeah. pulled by the gravity. <laughs> it's just hard to imagine that kind of power and, and that stretching and spaghettifying effect. It's. It, it's hard to get your head around. Yeah, I don't. Although I doubt we'll ever witness it, because if we witness it, we're there, and that's the end of that. <laughs> that's right. Um, I, I would imagine it would not be a pretty sight uh, all around spaghettification, mm. but yes. Yeah. So uh, in the future, when we're able to achieve interstellar travel, mm-hmm. they will be putting no fishing signs just outside <laughs> all black holes. Yeah. Zach, <laughs> that sounds right. Because all you're going to catch is your death of cold. (laughs) You'll be stretched to the limit as well. (laughs) As is our our imagination, I have to say. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Mm. All right. Uh, Zach, um, a quick answer to that one. Don't do it. Just don't do it. That's the bottom line. Especially on the ISS Titanic. (laughs) That would not be good. All right, lovely to hear from you and hope all is well in Washington, D.C. Um, my gosh, that was a quick show, Fred. We, we got through that one mighty fast. Did we not? Yeah, well, it's been good stuff. It's all, all, yes, all good. Indeed. I, th- I mm. think there's merit in brevity at times. I, I agree, yes. <laughs> all right, uh, don't forget, though, if you do have questions for us, we'd certainly love for you to send them in. You can do that through our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. That's much easier to remember. And uh, click on the AMA link where you can upload your text and audio questions as long as you've got a device with a microphone. could be a smartphone, could be a tablet, could be a computer, could be anything like that. Most of them come with microphones built in these days. Um, just uh, click on the record button and Bob's your uncle. And just tell us your name. Could be Bob. And uh, where you're from and uh, fire away with your question. Love hypotheticals. So if you've got something weird that's keeping you awake at night like Zach, uh, by all means, send it through to us and we will solve it for you. Or not. Or not. <laughs> um, and if you uh, go to our website, there's also a send us your audio question tab on the right-hand side. So you can click on that and send us uh, recorded questions as well. And uh, while you're at um, the website, check out uh, the latest edition of Astronomy Daily uh, because my little brother Steve is looking after the show at the moment because I'm not here. Oh, you're not? No. <laughs> I'm not here. I'll tell you all about it when I get back. Yeah. It's because we've been hovering around a black hole. Yeah, it's been a time. Yeah. Just watch out for the antimatter as well. I'll explain it all later. Um, but that brings us to the end of the show. Fred, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Andrew, and I look forward to the next one. Uh, Indeed. We'll catch you soon. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening uh, to this edition of Space Nuts. We'll catch you on the very next episode.
Bye bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Okay. Uh, press stop, press stop. Hang on. Where'd my cursor go? There it is. <laughs> This new computer, this new fangled thing. Uh, All right, stop.